Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, and especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mm, 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 mm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Mm. Jason Momoa says in Final Fantasy, is it not Final Fantasy? Jason Fast Momoa in Final Fantasy? 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 Camera already? Fast and Furious 9. I'm sorry. Jason Momoa, <laughs> oh, okay. he's like, he's jumping off the car and he's like, here we go. Nobody? Nobody? Okay. I never Thank saw you. it. I, I remember that. What, what, what was what was the point? Like, what were you? I said, here 10. we go. Because like, that was Fast and Furious. That was 10, yeah. Yes. Which I heard was not as good as 9. Hmm. I have, again, haven't seen Subjective it, opinion. Uh, thank you so much for listening to Trilove. It's a literal roundtable podcast where we talk about movies we saw or people we met at or through the Trilove Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota, almost made it. You can find us on Twitter at Trilove Podcast. You can find the Trilon at Trilon Cinema and at Trilon.org. Get tickets, showings, and other cool ways to support the Trilon there. My name is Jason Daphnis. I am, in fact, wearing my Sunday shoes. And you can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. I drink better than I dance. I'm Cody Narvison, and you can find me on Blue Sky at Cody Narvison. Damn it, Cody Snipe mine. Uh, if you don't give your heart wings, you'll never learn to fly. I'm Harry Mack, and you can find me on Twitter at PunishTake. Oh, and my name is Aaron, and I'm just a big city kid in a small town. Uh, and you can find me on Twitter at RBPlease. That's how I've always described you as my friend, Aaron Grossman, big city kid in small town. Uh, and we're actually very pleased. You will have had this spoiled by the time that you check out this episode, but we're very pleased to be welcoming a brand new guest to the podcast. Celia Madison is uh, is joining us for today's discussion. Welcome, Celia. Hi, I'm Celia Madison, and I'm uplifting and don't confuse people's minds. Um, you can find me on socials at Celia Madison everywhere. There you go. Uh, well, thanks for joining, Celia. Before we get into the discussion proper, uh, with new guests, we like to ask what your connection to the Trilon is, what you've done there, what maybe your most impactful viewing experiences, whatever criteria you like. But tell us a little bit about uh, Celia plus the Trilon. Uh, so I was a volunteer at the Trilon for a long time. I only stopped because I unfortunately moved away from Minnesota and the plane ride commute was not realistic. <laughs> um, but Footloose was actually the movie that I chose as my going away movie. Um, and we did like a volunteer screening in 2021 in March. Um, so wow. amidst the pandemic, everyone was masked, but they threw me a little going away party. And I was like, get the 1984 Footloose. Do not get the 2011 version, <laughs> which I still have yet to see. It sounds like a good choice to make for your own uh, survival and satisfaction. Um, so tell us a little bit about uh, your, uh, not necessarily about this movie. We'll just get into the discussion, but um, I did want to plug uh, your sub stack. I believe it's called Deeper Into Movies. You wrote about that on that pretty regularly. And it's really good. It is. It's wonderful. It. You should check it out. There's a link in the show notes, uh, listener, if you haven't checked it out already. Um, I guess you I don't want... follow, you subscribe to sub stacks, right? I don't know. You should do whatever know. you do. Yeah. Do we want to make this a podcast about uh, Substack and newsletter business models, Harry, or do we want to make it about movies with fun guests from the Trilon? Thank you. I'll be the producer <laughs> on this episode. Thank you. Jesus. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I wanted to bring up uh, one relevant conversation that, well, discussion that you that you made in a written piece for your Substack um, about the dancing and Napoleon Dynamite. Uh, I guess there's a couple instances where you've written about dance and film and the intersections thereof. Uh, tell us a little bit about your history with dance movies. Is it a genre that you brought to? Is it something that always sort of ignites your imagination? What makes you want to write about it, and what makes you want to talk about it on this podcast with us? Yeah, it's a genre that I love, um, and I'm not a dancer. I don't have any like 
personal experience with dance as an art form. I just really enjoy it. Um, I think like the cliche of, you know, a musical, you sing when the emotions fail you and then you dance when you can't, when singing isn't enough. Um, the way that dance movies are able to capture that in these kinds of literal ways. Um, I think there's just something also about, I enjoy sports movies and that the dance movie allows you to make a sport movie with also this artistic side is really appealing. Um, Footloose is a little bit different because it's a movie about dance, but no one in the movie is really a dancer necessarily. It's not like at like center stage is a dance movie I really love where they're at a ballet school and the focus is dance mm-hmm. and they're all dancers and their career is in dance. But with this, it's like dancing is just an expression of the character's joy, an expression of their youth. Um, and so the dancing is obviously like s- fundamental to the storyline. But as you will see in the dance scenes, um, Kevin Baker is not like a professional dancer. He's just a guy who likes to move his body and to express himself. Um, and I think Footloose is a really like beautiful example of something that I just love in dance movies, which is the ability to express joy through physical movement. I love that. Uh, yeah, you can tell he actually has a scene where he discusses that trying to get into the, I think it's the gymnasts team and he's uh sort of denied that uh it is a good case like it's a more vehicle i guess a storytelling device than an actual like the the plot point right um the phrase that made me want to think about this uh was i think it might have been how you closed your piece about napoleon dynamite and it's that the dance scene in that uh set to jamiroquai of course uh, is memorable because it reminds us of all the ways we have and haven't been brave it feels like a miracle that we could have been part of when we questioned whether our community could handle something strange and then they did i found that a really beautiful interpretation of the uh, Napoleon Dynamite final scene where he's just dancing his uh, Oklahoma white. When is that movie set? Where is that movie set? Oklahoma. I think it's I also know. Utah. Utah. I think, yeah, it is. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I think it's also Utah. Commonalities. Uh, mm. Those threads only here on Try Love. Um, but yeah, go check out Celia's uh, Substack. It's in the show notes. Um, but and again, thank you for joining us, Celia. We'll get into the full discussion. Uh, before we do that, I have to ring in the patented Aaron Grossman summary. And if you can believe it, Celia, that in fact has its own yep. sound effect, and it goes like, "Yes, indeed, folks." Thank you. Yes, indeed, folks. Uh, we're talking, of course, about Footloose, uh, 1984 film, uh, directed by Herbert Ross, uh, starring Kevin Bacon, Laurie Singer, and John Lithgow. Uh, the film is set in the conservative, uh, previously mentioned Utah town of Beaumont, uh, where dancing and rock music have been uh, outlawed uh, due to mainly due to the influence of the town preacher, uh, Reverend Shaw Moore. Um, young high schooler Ren moves to Beaumont from big city Chicago uh, and quickly falls for Moore's daughter Ariel. Uh, but Ren's love of dancing quickly makes him the target of the town. Uh, film was like a, a just kind of a, a massive kind of runaway uh, hit on release, was critically maybe a, a bit more mixed. Um, several songs from the film would, of course, go on to uh, kind of uh, uh, will do quite well. The title track, obviously, uh, by Kenny Loggins, uh, but also Let's Hear It for the Boy uh, by Denise Williams. Uh, we're both, uh, they did quite well uh, on the charts. Uh, Kenny Loggins' uh, single uh, went number one, actually, I think, for a few weeks. Uh, but they were both also nominated for the Academy Award for Best Original Song. Um, as also mentioned, there was a uh, 2011 remake that I believe is uh, not very good, although technically does have a higher Rotten Tomato score uh, than the original Footloose, just kind of due to the, the nature of how things age, I guess. Due um, to one man who's named Roger Ebert. He fucking hated Roger this Ebert movie has, so bad. Uh, 
he he really ripped into actually this movie and the the remake and in kind Gotta of a classic, very yeah. funny Roger Ebert way. I think for so the for the original, he wrote a seriously confused movie that tries to do three things and does them all badly, which is like a kind of a classic. Roger did Ebert he enumerate what the things were in the review? Yes, he he goes on to say it's like a it's a, a movie about rebellious teens. It's a it's a music video. It's a you know a movie about a town. Or Weird Reagan uh, apologia. Okay. Yeah, something like that. And then he also, let me find the, he also, of the remake, said uh, a film without wit, humor, or purpose, uh, which is just, you know, every once in a while, he's, he's pretty funny with it. So, uh, but yes, Celia, it's my understanding that uh, this film, I, before recording, you said this film is deep in your psyche. So I'll, I'll pass it off to you, I guess, just to start. Um, what's your history with Footloose? What do you think of Footloose? Why is it deep in your psyche? Um, I think I first saw this movie probably in 2014 or 2015. So I was in college. I was definitely not in the like, you know, teen, whatever age that this movie is intended for. I think I would have been older than the characters are supposed to be, but younger than the actors actually are. Um, and so, uh, I, I feel like this is a movie that for a long time, it, honestly, on any good day, you can approach me and ask me what my favorite movie is. And there's a chance I say Footloose. Um, I think this was a movie that initially maybe even like got me interested in film, which is a very strange realization I had. And I was really desperately looking through like old journals to see if I had written anything down about this movie, um, that I could find to be like, okay, here's what I wrote when I was 20 that made me like root this movie so deeply in me. Um, but I couldn't and rewatching it. This was the first time I'd seen it since uh, 2021. So I guess two years is not that long. Um, but I kind of, because I like it so much, I remembered, I like was surprised when I went to the reviews of it and saw that there were so many negative reviews and that it doesn't have a very high Rotten Tomatoes score because in my head, I'm like, well, this is just like dirty dancing. Like this is like a classic that everybody loves and appreciates as like a critical piece of art. Um, that is not the case. I can't understand why, but I think mm -hmm. the thing that appeals to me about this movie, beyond what I said before about like the the physical movement and, and the joy of dancing and how this movie just makes dancing look so much fun um, and so exciting to be this age and to be only and to be limited from expressing yourself and then finally able to. Um, there's something about, and it's similar maybe to the Napoleon Dynamite thing of this this movie that's like looking back with nostalgia on itself. And it's this small town where the goal of the movie, you know, Ariel talks about wanting to leave, but the goal of the movie is not, I'm going to move to LA. I'm going to move to New York. I'm going to move to Chicago or whatever, even like Salt Lake city. The goal is not to get out. The goal is just to make it through the year. Um, and there's something really appealing about the idea that these kids are just creating this world for themselves and they just are putting on this dance um, there's no, there's no real like big overarching gigantic story. It's just like, this will be a nice memory that all these other kids will have of the time this kid from Chicago came to them and changed their lives for a year. Um, and I think that's why it stays with me. I have more to say about the very romantic friendship between Willard, um, and Ren that really speaks to me. But Willard I'm, forever. Oh my oh God. God it's best. so good. Um, but those are the, the big themes. Uh, thank you for setting the stage so wonderfully. I, I got to say this here. Let's hear it for the boy scene. The straightest thing I've ever seen on camera, just clearly and utterly heterosexual, uh, in, unimpeachably straight. Um, I like 
I too love how the movie doesn't like it. The, the end goal, like you said, isn't what you might imagine from this, from a classic like eighties movie from this one that's had such pop culture influence where it's got to be two warring factions sort of like butting heads and one wins, one loses kind of thing. Uh, I know Harry's going to be a little bit rankled by my, uh, some of my opinions about this movie, which are going to probably lean a little, little bit more positive, but um, the fact that it like, the movie itself doesn't center it very often. I was t- talking with Harry before we started about how like a lot happens in the background here. There's some stuff that kind of gets re- done between the lines plot wise and like narrative wise. Um, but I appreciate how it's slightly more nuanced about its central conflict than like, you know, old heads can just go suck eggs and, but it also doesn't like completely uh, hand wave the responsibility of, of like Shaw's generation in building this like repressive conservative uh, idea of how like their society should run. Um, I guess I'm more commenting on and building from what you said, Celia, than actually bringing up something new. But uh, I, I guess that's to level set about how I feel about this movie. There's what I saw and sort of what I'm reading between the lines on. And I think I feel pretty good about both, but maybe I'm convincing myself that I like it more than I do. Um, I'll hand off to Aaron now before I dig my hole even deeper. Sure. I'll say that I think this, this movie is like kind of interestingly placed uh, alongside a few of the movies we we've done recently that have been about kind of like, um, you know, like a, a backlash to a uh, kind of a, a second half of the, the 20th century, like kind of conservative uh, political and like cultural, uh, you know, environment uh, that's existed. And that's like over like a bunch of years, not just necessarily like the 80s, but the, the 70s as well. We talked about like High Mom and Apocalypse Now. Like that's obviously like very weird comparison points for like Footloose uh, specifically. But I do think there is like... Like this film is obviously not like some sort of like rebellious film. Like it's it's kind of hard to to really buy into like some of the more like uh, aspects of like counterculture in this film, given that like you can't go like two minutes without somebody placing like a Coca Cola cup directly in front of the camera, right? Um, but there is something about like the the kind of cheesiness of this film being about like young rebellious spirits, uh, but like being about that in kind of this like yeah, very cheesy, positive manner that I, I kind of buy into in a way that that's interesting. Um, and I think that also maybe ties into uh, the reception of this, this movie. Uh, I think maybe being more positive over time. I think that like, you know, I don't know how much of like Rotten Tomatoes is recent reviews versus like kind of older reviews from when the movie first came out. Um, but I do think that there is like, you know, this coming out in like 1984 and then watching it then, I do think that like, there is kind of like an appreciation for the cheesiness that you can have kind of looking back at it that like make this makes this kind of an enjoyable watch, I think. Um, so this movie is like not my thing at all, but I, I kind of dug it not entirely in like a kind of ironic way, but like in kind of like a, you know, it like won me over over the course of the the hour and, you know, 45 minutes or so that I spent watching it. I, I, I think I dug it. Yeah. Yeah, um, I, I'm glad you brought up irony right at the end. That was maybe one of my favorite top level thoughts or like top level takeaways from this movie is that it feels like a dispatch from like a pre irony era when like I can't believe that you can like make a movie like this and just have Kevin Bacon be dancing that way to that song. And it's not a joke. It's not like a piss take about something. It's just great. Right. Um, so I guess to, to respond to Jason's unfair characterization 
of my own feelings uh, before he had even heard them. Uh, I can I think I like this movie quite a bit, um, and I'm also fascinated by it. I think it's like low key kind of an incredible cultural touchstone for understanding like the '80s psyche, um, especially with regard to like rebellion versus traditionalism and assimilationism. Um, it was a very conservative time in the United States. 1984 was when uh, Reagan cr- absolutely crushed Walter Mondale, um, RIP, uh, to be reelected yeah. as the president of the United States. Um, I think that this movie is really deeply in conversation with like what American conservatism is in some fascinating ways. And I think that like, First of all, I read it as a pretty conservative movie, right? I think it's deeply assimilationist. I think it like I, I was really dis- dismaying when like the entire final big speech that Kevin Bacon gives has to be about how actually dance isn't subversive at all and how it belongs in sort of like the Bible Belt. It's sort of like, oh, that's like classic, like actually like being queer isn't a uh, subversion of traditional values. It's just part of traditional values. It's like, is it? And like, maybe it would be better if it wasn't. But um I find it, uh, I found that fascinating. I find this movie's relationship to queerness also fascinating. Maybe I'm reading into that too much, but like, it's super funny the ways that this movie, like, both tries to have its cake and eat it too, where like, it, Kevin Bacon is obviously not a traditionally masculine hero. Uh, dancing is obviously not traditionally masculine, but also like they have to go out of their way to present that like, oh, these guys learned to dance and it made them good enough at fighting to win a 2v5 fight. Uh, so they're actually like real badasses and more manly than the other people. So dance is actually uh, cool and manly now, guys like sports. Um, and uh, I also thought like, I think that, I can't wait to talk about John Lithgow as like the real main character of this movie um, for better and worse. Um, I mean, gotta love Lithgow, huge Lithgow head, obviously. So um, all about that. He really brings it in this performance. And there are a shocking number of scenes that are just he and his wife having very adult conversations about uh, their like marriage. (laughs) Um, So there's a lot going on in this movie. um, But I think like, Overall, what I think I liked most is something Celia said early on, which is that like it it's really a, a movie where the plot is secondary to like the vibes. And I hate to be one of those sort of like touchy feely type critics, but like I think I really sat in the world of this movie in a way that like a more traditionally structured movie couldn't get me there you know like there are so many repetitive scenes in this movie where like you'll get john lithgow talking to his wife like three or four times talking to his daughter like three or four times kevin bacon and and, uh the daughter talking about escaping the city like a huge number of times and there's no like forward momentum in those scenes but they do a really great job of sort of like illustrating the emotional stakes of what's happening um in a way that brings you in in a that I really like. And it, it makes the dancing um, feel really cathartic in a way that um, the movie obviously wanted to, to get there. And I think it does that successfully um, not only through the dance, but also like the formal elements surrounding the dancing um, in a way that, that I think is pretty successful. And um, I was pretty taken with, right? Like, I think that by the end of the movie, like that final dance sequence does legitimately feel cathartic. Um, in a way that I, I think the movie communicates really effectively. Um, Cody, have you seen this movie before? Uh, and what did you think of it then? And what do you think of it now? Yeah, for sure. Thanks. I, I first, I've only seen this movie one other time and it was, I 
checked letterbox it was almost literally a year ago it was last november um so seeing it last night at the trial on was my only other time um going off vibes and and touchy-feely criticism uh i kind of love this movie um i love it for its its vibes and its its touchy-feeliness and in trying to make sense of my very overwhelming overwhelmingly positive rather gut reactions to all of this like i i found it it checked a lot of like very kind of dry filmmaking 101 type boxes um but like in really like in in significant ways in ways that i think um elicited a ton of great payoff while watching um uh kevin bacon and uh just i should call them by the character names ren and shaw being these sort of um cosmically balanced forces um both acting within their own and this is me just adding more ingredients to the pot everybody's thrown out really great um really great thoughts about this movie so far. So apologies for coming at it from a completely different angle, but Ren and Shaw, um, cosmically balanced, both uh, as we come to find them acting in their own self-interest uh, in, you know, like ways that are rationalized on screen, largely through their own speech and just like seeing how their actions ripple outward um, to their immediately surrounding community. Um, I thought that was, uh, I don't know, illustrated kind of fascinatingly. I, I like how that's um, portrayed in the scope of everything that's going on. Um, you have a, a protagonist in, in Ren McCormick who is, you know, he's he's kicked around. Um, <laughs> I, whenever I, I think about um, a protagonist starting, well, I can't help but think about that every frame of painting Jackie Chan um, thing. And there's uh, elements of uh, very strong physical performances in here as well. So there is a reason for me bringing that up. Um, but on his way, kind of uh, on his on his way down, you know, Ren is, uh, he's getting kicked. He's getting shit thrown at him. Um, he's throwing out little like barbs, to everybody while still acting really cool. Um, which I, I don't know. It's, I don't know. Kevin Bacon's a star. I don't really know what you want me to say. Um, I, I found him to be really charming, uh, and endearing to watch. Um, you have an antagonist who learned something. Uh, the entire third act is largely John Lithgow's reverend, um, kind of um reconciling all this uh and um you know learning from his transgressions uh and the antagonists who don't learn get the shit kicked out of them in the last five minutes of the movie um which is also extremely fun um violence is not cool or good uh unless it is uh, i disagree yeah. suck uh, unless the dudes suck uh, which, unless kevin which, which they certainly do throwing out like jean-claude van damme kicks at the end it fucking rocked it, dude. okay it was so if, good if we're gonna go there uh, pro final act ass beating i'm putting like co-signing that i fucking loved that those kids just get their shit rocked i love that shit me too the flying too. sidekick off the porch is it's so a good very significant it's, it's moment for yeah. me. cody you can, you can go it's off so camera because because that was like a, a classic a double dragon scene like that was mm. that oh, was sure. billy and jimmy beating the piss out of some street punks. yeah the bully's head like snaps like you get to see the impact of the kick in a really physical way that was <laughs> I think he uh, killed that impressive boy. to me. Yeah. Most of the bullying up to that point feels like movie bullying, but the like him yeah. jumping off the side yeah. and kicking a man yeah. in the head feels like he has killed him. <laughs> well, like, actually, a dead body. Script, yeah. That would yes. It <laughs> doesn't show one, what happens to those kids, does it? I mean, right. they could be dead. That's yeah, true. You know, There's one other be. glaring exception. These mo- these bullies are like extreme movie bullies, except uh, one scene which is like one of the more harrowing or how. Harrowing? Harrowing. Harrowing, Harrowing depictions I've ever seen of a, a man just 
beating the shit out of a woman uh, in a, like a shockingly violent way that really, really took me. I was like, wait, did I not know what this movie is about? Is this what this movie is going to be about? And the answer is no. They just kind of move on from it. But there, there is a scene where a woman gets gets badly, badly uh, beaten by uh, a man that really, really shocked me. Yeah. Uh, yeah, a couple scenes. Um, truly shocking. I, I, yeah, I mean, retweet. That's yeah. Those those sucked, and it made it made those dudes getting their their faces absolutely knocked in. Um, a, man, a couple flying kicks as well. Um, made that all the more satisfying. But getting, uh, I guess, my last sort of thing. The um, cut to uh, to Celia's point about this being like a, a very uh, a movie that leverages and utilizes dance in like very specific conscious ways and i have no dancing background either in fact dancing is one of the things that like stresses me out more than most things uh in existence so i i think that is why i gravitate so strongly to something like this where dance is used as a means of positively and confidently expressing um feelings uh those sort of vibes that we were talking about um just uh, as a, a means of uh, i don't know a, a, an outlet um that everybody kind of latches onto um and, and what makes um willard's trajectory uh especially satisfying um so yeah, I don't know, all, all those things were kicking around it's a, a, a kind of I don't know, a really beautiful movie um it's something that really again checks off a lot of the boxes in my heart um so i come away from this pretty positively i think Jason? Uh, yeah, my viewing experience was definitely improved by watching it with Cody. I think uh, your appreciation for it on that sort of like, like you, I don't forget the term you use, but you use some self-denigrating term for like the basic sort of movie making, the, 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 the spectacle of it all. That would have only gotten me so far, but knowing that knowing your interest in it and knowing like how, what sort of reading I'm bringing to it, that elevated it to a certain extent. Um, somebody mentioned along the line that we should talk about John Lithgow as Shaw. I forget the character's last name, but the preacher. Um, uh, Harry, you called him the real main character. Uh, Cody, you called him cosmically balanced against uh, Ren. He actually like literally opens the movie after the opening credits with the dancing feet and, and shit. He opens the narrative with a montage of the town uh, with you know various shots um, and against this fire and brimstone sermon, uh, which I found like a really fun way to start this movie. Um, he looms large, especially uh, because very, Lithgow is fucking crushing. He he, he really That's is very good very scene. good. In this movie. Um, he he looms large over the whole movie. He obviously is like. The, he's the face of the um, like the establishment, the system that that Ren wants to sort of dismantle or question. Um, I, I want to toss to Celia and ask, like, did you how, how does this character's um, like how does John Lithgow as as Shaw? How does his characterization work for you? Has it changed over time? Just give me your take on Shaw. Um, I think what is lovely about the Lithgow performance is that um, Footloose is essentially set in a theocracy and the idea of you moving there to a, a, like, there doesn't really appear to be, I know there's police officers, but like, is there a government here or is it just the preacher? It seems like he runs the town. He runs like everything. Like it's, he's like a mob boss, but is also a preacher. He has like his fingers and like, he decides what books are going to get banned at the school. Like he's literally he's the king of this town and is also the preacher. Um, but because Lithgow has this like warmth and has this, you know, you, he plays the character as someone who is suffering very deeply from grief. Um, it makes him obviously, it makes him less of an antagonist. It makes him more of a challenge and more of like a rival rather than like, Oh, here's this, the, the evil, lord of um maybe <laughs> of all Beaumont? of utah yeah like 
uh, yeah, so um, I love it. I think what's interesting about him too that I noticed more in this watch is that I've never been crazy about Ariel's character. She reminds me a lot of some other kind of love interest from this era, um, the love interest from Near Dark and from The Lost Boys, these kind of women who are very beautiful and alluring and they want something bigger, but there's not a lot actually to them. She's and also watching- a vampire, of course, uh, which is worth <laughs> oh, knowing. Yeah. Yeah, that's the other complicated factor. Um, but in this one, I, I started to see her, um, like, this is a shot I wrote down to talk about later, but when she's, like, studying at her desk in the dark and her dad is right behind her and he's they're both, like, lit, but they're sitting in, like, pure pitch darkness because it's this, you know, small town, it's whatever season and it's just dark out and it looks like there's it's just like the two of them existing in this world and the similarities between the two of them and also the tension of like her being her father's daughter and not being her father's son and that like she has as much as he loves and adores her she is never going to be the son that he has lost this like beautiful son that they describe as looking like warren Beatty but taller um and, like, line. what a great line <laughs> And like that tension of this girl who is constantly seeking ways to prove to her father that she is worthy of his adoration and his love. Um, and the like that they that it's mentioned that they've always had this very close relationship that's become frayed as a result of her entering adolescence and also the loss of her brother. Um and that aspect of it being, you know, these two characters are extremely similar, but because of because of all these other things that have happened, they are pushing themselves away. Um, Also, I feel like I didn't really think about the fact that he hits her pretty close in succession to when she's attacked by her insane boyfriend. Um, And the realization of like her just being caught in this cycle between these men who are seeking to control her um, gave her a little bit more of a light in this watch. Um, But that again is like motivated by the Lithgow performance um, because after he hits her, we still feel this sympathy for him. Like he is somebody who is unable to express. He can't dance out his grief. He can't express any of the things that he's feeling. What did you think about him? Yeah, I, I think like Lith- Lithgow is like an interesting choice of an actor here because he is like a- an actor who is like, I mean, obviously like good enough to like do the not even like complicated thing, but I think like the really interesting thing that the the role that this character serves, which is to, in my opinion, it's like the most satisfying kind of villain, right? Which is the villain who is like dead set in their ways, but is like pushed to the breaking point and and becomes this kind of, uh, you know, reluctant hero alongside the protagonist, right? I think that there's something very interesting about this character, like slowly becoming, uh, coming to understand like the, the actual impact impacts of his actions right i think some of that some of that maybe doesn't really work i think like the the book burning scene is just like kind of comes out of nowhere not really because they like basically set it up but the fact that it's just like they're burning books over at the library all of a sudden and like you know it's a little i I guess convenient right but um I, i think that like that is kind of the interesting thing like i think he he is meant to to mirror um the name of that character that i'm gonna forget who is the ren boyfriend at the start of the film oh, chuck? Rusty? chuck chuck cranston yes. Ch- chuck cranston who, what a name yes i think that like obviously like the physical violence and whatnot like we are supposed to kind of view um i think uh, uh moore's actions as like kind of not quite to that point but like that is 
that is kind of like the branching path, right? Um, and I think it's like it's kind of heartwarming and like rewarding for the audience to see him kind of make the right choices. Um, it's like a simple thing, but you know, Lithgow is like a, a great guy to like do those very impactful, simple character beats. I think. Yeah, I'm of two minds about Lithgow's character, Shaw, in this movie, because on the one hand, I agree. I think he's the most satisfying character narratively uh, in terms of an arc. I also think that he kind of represents the like pernicious conservatism of this movie in that like they really go out of their way to make him sympathetic, as Celia noted, even after he's hit his... Uh, um, daughter, but even sort of beyond that, they tie his grief about losing his son to his conservatism and his um, like religiousness in a way that feels like a movie. The movie, not ne- even if not necessarily sympathizing, legitimizing it in a way that I think is like categorically false and kind of dangerous, right? Which dangerous is a silly thing to say because like I don't think Footloose is a dangerous movie. <laughs> I don't even think it's a particularly conservative movie. Uh, It's a movie of its time. But just the idea that, like, for instance, like, I I feel that, like, the idea that this this grieving preacher father, like, becoming a hardline repressive conservative in response to grief as a sort of way to make sure that, that the thing that aggrieved him doesn't happen again, which is the movie's justification and his own justification for his actions it sort of gets conservatism and repression wrong, right? Which is the idea that like, it comes from a place of like, like concern in the first place, right? Like there's this idea that like, Oh, like I'm trying to protect you. And it's like, maybe conservatives themselves would say that. Right. But it's concern trolling, right? It's like, it's patently false. Like actual conservatives don't have the best interests in heart of their daughter or anybody. They just want to punish and control people that are able to express themselves in ways that they are not. Um, I don't, I think that the movie never really gets there. Like I would have maybe loved to scene where Lithgow like wants to dance or something as silly as that sounds, but like it, it really sort of like it goes out of its way to, to sort of legitimize the idea that the actions he's taking are coherent with his worldview in a way that they are patently not, or rather they are, but the worldview that he espouses and he actually believes is not the one that he says he has. Right. Which is that like, I don't think he actually like as, as a conservative, like he's not interested in protecting these kids. He's interested in like repressing them for his own gratification, which is what doesn't the, can I, can I challenge your your point there to a little bit? Doesn't the, I, I, I think I like generally agree with you, uh, uh, from like a, I don't know, intellectual level, but I think that like, I was kind of buying into that while I was watching the film, but I think that like the presence of the, even more, more like that's the interesting evil, thing, right? <laughs> yeah, is that kind of help helps to balance it. The movie yeah. goes out of its mind. way, and it's really funny because it's like the movie is like I think it's like uh, an hour forty seven minutes long, and it's like you could cut all of those scenes and make it a feature length. So it's very clearly like they wanted this, but like yes, there there are these repeated scenes where Lithgow all of a sudden is uncharacteristically moderate. Uh, after talking to his wife, talking to other people in the town, all of a sudden he's the guy like, whoa, guys, we can't go this far. The thing that bothered me about that is he is clearly the reason why the town became what it is. And they never really like he never really has to like deal with the fact that he was responsible for this. In fact, he becomes extremely judgmental of the people who are burning books. And it's like, dog, like those are your out al- like acolytes. <laughs> like they're literally following in your footsteps. Um, so, yeah, I think but I like. 
you're right. Like, I think the movie is doing that to try to demonstrate that he is actually like not that he has sort of maybe lost control of what he wanted to do, that maybe he was like his conservatism was coming from the thing a genuine he, place he right that didn't he, want yes right Classic. um and it's sort of like taken on a life of its own which is why we need a character like ren to sort of like restore balance right i just think that i think that like the the mechanism there where um like his grief is used as this like extended apologia in a way that feels like almost propagandistic to me <laughs> especially when like again the um the like the dancing ultimately is characterized as something that does belong, right? That's something that is not a challenge to the conservatism of this town and to the values that it turns out they all espouse, which is, you know, again, like fascinating in a 1984 sense, right? That like we get this movie that ultimately ends up uh, sort of like resolving its dialectical struggle by uh, demonstrating that everybody's actually on the same side, <laughs> right? Which which is like extremely like what conservatism looked like in America in 1984. It's like, hey man, we all hate gay people, so like let's just all rally around that, and like maybe we can we can all like agree on something, right? And um, you know, but I, so it, I just think it's it's really fascinating the way that like maybe the Overton window was at this place at this time, but it was a really fascinating like this movie that's ostensibly about rebellion in like the most classical terms, right? Like the dancing is so obviously a metaphor for breaking out and dancing is literally illegal in this town. It's, it's crazy. Um, it ends up being this, this weird thing where it's, it's actually more about um, sort of like assimilating the youth into the traditional structure because the traditional structure actually has their best interest at heart, which, you know, it's, I, as I think I've made clear, something that I think is extremely not true. Um, but but it is really interesting the way that it operates, right? The way that it, it adds that nuance in order to get there, I think. Yeah. I think Shaw is an interesting character specifically because of that, because he is sort of like, obviously he's the face of the um, system to be like, just what Ren is, you know, fighting against whatever he calls it, his own fight when uh, Ariel tries to sort of join it. And another amazing line, because this movie has such a great way of saying the most ridiculous things you've ever heard, like so straight face that you buy mm -hmm. it. It's It's like, she's, yeah, it, it's a goofy turn, uh, but I, fi I find that like a separate discussion point. I think more about the uh, Ren and Ariel relationship earnestly. But in, in the case of Shaw, uh, I think there's like it's interesting that I think uh, again not to you know conjure the ghost of Roger, Roger Ebert too much, but his review, interview review, he called it like a 180 that just happens inexplicably, inexplicably that like it, it that it's poor filmmaking that he sort of like was given this ability to uh to be redeemed sort of near the end um i think that a lot happens in that short act that we uh, like that sort of recontextualizes some earlier stuff let me just set the sequence of events here um shaw consistently uh positioned as sort of the conservative preacher the one who's sort of lobbying for all of these uh law he's on the city council he's got them sort of in his pocket um eventually we learned that his son has died in a car accident that was sort of maybe uh, drug and alcohol uh, influenced with you know the uh, partying and music that goes with that that led him to this certain like trauma quote unquote um and around that time is like 
is is when we start to see him being decentralized as the main antagonist. He's no longer like the biggest bad guy. He's becoming more of an empathetic character. You're starting to realize like what put him in this position, why he feels this way, why he thinks this way. Um, And around then is when we get the scene of it's kind of like a montage where he's giving this same speech about having gone to Denver recently and talking to people from the the big city who are like, how can you like exist in this town where nothing ever happens sort of thing. And he gets to talking in the moment. Here's the thing. That scene to me was like, he's doing his uh, religious hucksterism sort of, he's talking it up. He's sort of like selling the same preacher line that he always sells um, because he's talking about like being connected in mind and spirit with your community and stuff. And like, you know, it just sounds very Pentecostal. Right. And then later on, when we start to reveal the uh, actual motivations behind his actions and behind how he feels and, uh, and like what sets him in direct opposition to Ren, I feel like I thought of that scene differently later on that it became more of like this. He still has this desire to like protect and uh, express through community, but he's sort of like, he's wrangled something that he can't necessarily, that he doesn't realize is his own influence, so to speak. Uh, and that's like the movie undergoes this. That's why I'm saying I read behind the lines to get there. Excuse me, between the lines to get there, because I don't think it shows it on screen very often until it becomes an exact, an explicit example of like him stopping a book burning and him being in direct opposition to the city council on a couple of key issues um, where like off screen, somewhere along the line, he, be- he becomes cognizant that like, Oh, actually the influence that I wield uh, is rooted in this same fear that I feel about like the future of my children, the future of our community, the like ability for us to express and connect together. And that is what's driven me to this leadership role. And he doesn't really get that time to go through that journey on his own. Like Harry said, I think it's a great couple scenes that he has with his wife where he's able to like sort of expose some of that. And she's able to sort of poke uh, some holes in his argument and like get behind the armor kind of thing. Um, But it's like, it's only in retrospect that I could see those scenes where he's speaking more genuinely, uh, where originally I read it as sort of cynical as he's you know pushing his agenda sort of thing, more to where he's maybe trying to connect with people. It is shown like, I think then the onus goes to the community that's been sort of accepting it or interpreting it a certain way, because in that same scene, the montage of people's faces, uh, you get people like sitting at dinner tables, eating cake and people on porches and just these super idyllic scenes. Um, and all of those faces, all those people seem to be just soaking it up uncritically, just loving it. He's a rock star to them sort of thing. And I think only again, when I'm thinking back to that scene, can I say, oh, well, his actual motivation was still not completely dissimilar from Ren's. It's a, like a fear and a confusion about the future. It's just like sort of filtered through this, somebody who does have institutional power versus somebody who doesn't in the case of Ren, somebody who does have institutional institutional power, not really like considering that he's gotten it, that he has it, that he wields this influence and that the sermons that he's been preaching for a long time that really seem to connect with people that seem to bring people closer together are also changing their hearts for the much worse. I'm probably on like a cheesy eighties thing. I'm not really in this mode very often, but this movie does bring it out for me. And I feel like maybe that's a discussion point. We want to like linger on a little bit, Harry. Yeah, I think I like that characterization. I like the characterization that um, maybe Shaw sort of like realizes what I realized about him in this movie and sort of like realizes that like, oh, what he thought he was doing. He like you have to sort of the movie assumes good faith, no pun intended for Shaw. Um, But uh, he realizes that in his good faith attempt, what he was actually doing was driving this uh, city into intolerance Mm -hmm. and i kind of like the idea that like he 
finds by the end of his arc, and I think this is supported by the movie, that he has a duty to undo what he had done. Yeah, um, exactly. And what what he does to undo what he's done is is basically like hand off the uh, hand the baton to the younger generation and say like, okay, you're going to. Um, I I don't know. Maybe I'm maybe I just like I hate the idea like the preacher as character as institution too much to fully get behind that but like i still feel myself equivocating about like a lot of the way the language worked where he was like oh if we don't trust our children how will they ever become trustworthy is one of his lines and like that really rubbed me uh the wrong way or just like the the fact that like i don't know it really it feels like the the fundamental thing that you have to kind of accept uh, which I'm I'm willing to accept false premises for a movie. I think I do it all the time, right? But like, there's this idea that like Lithgow's character Shaw thought that his conservatism was ever going to be an effective way to stop people from acting out. Like, I think that the movie wants you to accept that that's true. I think that the movie wants you to maybe even think that it, there is some logic operating there. But it's not <laughs> like it, it clearly doesn't work. And I, I think that, like, in fact, the movie does a good job, especially in the first act of showing that, like, repressing makes everything worse. Like it, it makes dancing like having sex to these people where, like, they're fucking crazy about it. It's all they think about. Right. Is acting out and dancing and having sex. And I mean, also was, Ariel yeah. is like about to commit suicide. Like, yeah. Yeah. Five different times. Right. Right. And clearly is like trying to get there right um and i i feel like the i wish that the movie had uh i guess dug into that a little bit more dug into like the way that repression operates to actually make things like more desirable um i don't think it quite gets there i think it starts to and then it sort of like bails out i guess um in order to do these other things um, and in order to spend an inordinate amount of time humanizing John Lithgow's character, which again, you have Lithgow, so that makes sense. But I just, I found it strange in a way that felt a little bit insidious to me. <laughs> I don't know how, but maybe, maybe your mileage may vary uh, with, with how you feel about that. Yeah. I think, again, I'm bringing a bit to the table in terms of like how I want to see that. But when I do, it, it does seem like more of a complete picture. Um, we've talked a lot about sort of the, of course, bringing up Lithgow's character as like the separation between generations. He's figurehead of one, Ren is figurehead of another. But somebody we haven't talked about yet is Ren and Willard. Uh, there is one like pretty glorious scene, but it's sort of the relationship within one of one of those two camps um, that comes to mean a lot about the movie and about like where, where those characters end up toward the end. Um, Celia, you brought up Ren and Willard. Uh, give us your, your take on what those characters are doing, uh, how you feel about their, their friendship as it grows and you know what it means to teach each other to dance. I think this is probably one of the initial reasons why I didn't love Ariel is because I was like the real like key relationship in this movie is between Ren and Willard and she's kind of getting in the way of their <laughs> friendship. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I actually watched one scene from the 2011 version, which has Miles Teller playing the part played by Chris Penn, which I think is actually like pretty good casting besides the fact that they weirdly look um, exactly the same and have the same face. But uh the the it, what I saw while watching it clarified why I love it so much in this original movie. Um, in the remake, they really remove the two of them are not dancing together. Like it's Ren's little cousins or something. It's a group of like little girls who are teaching him at first how to sing, and they're singing "Let's Hear It for the Boy" kind of to him. And um, Woody and Ren are watching and kind of laughing at him. 
Um, and I was like, yeah, that's not what this movie is about for me. It's not about Willard just learning dance moves. It's about him developing this friendship that he has not experienced before um, and learning that he can become friends with a different type of person than he thought he would be. Um, I think also like Chris Penn is so lovely in this movie. He is so sweet. He is like, I listened to, I used to own the DVD of this, but I lost it in the move, unfortunately. But I remember one of the special features was everyone talking about Chris Penn who passed away some like anniversary, you know, uh, footage they put together and just talking about like Sarah Jessica Parker was just talking about how he was like the loveliest person and how he was so warm and caring and he was always doing he was like that kind of Willard character in real life he was like Woody tells some story about how the first time he met him he was grilling steaks in the hotel room and smoked the hotel room out and so just like that that warmth I think you see in Willard and that's what makes this friendship so deeply appealing there is also this very romantic framework um where it's like this is the plot of dirty dancing it's like the cool older man teaching this kind of sheltered kid how to express themselves through dance um and i think just like the immediacy that they kind of look at each other you know he they like bump into each other in the hallway and kind of rag on each other and then it's like they have a I mean they have a meet cute. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And it's like that moment where you see this spark of like, oh, there is somebody else like in in this world for me that I can understand. Um, and so that's that's like the heart for me about these two is just mm-hmm. how they I mean, it's like they, it's darling, honestly, like the, the way that they speak to each other. It's I, I like every time I watch it, I'm just like, I think a lot of times when you think about movies about male relationships, and I say this as a woman, but there's always like a framework around them. Like they're in the mafia, they're in war. There's like all these kind of rules around it to make it be okay. that These two men are like obsessed with each other and only want to spend time with each other. And then this like, yeah, they're in high school. There's nothing else to do. But like the scenes of them dancing and like Willard performing for his friend um i that's another shot i have like burned in my head is like the camera is like almost on the ground it's this low shot it almost feels like a proto tiktok where he's like learn the moves and is showing (laughs) them off for his buddy um and like the the joy of just being like yeah i'm just doing these things to amuse and delight my friend because i love him so much um and there's no like framework of like oh they're both on the basketball team and They've made this deal because, you know, they have some kind of arrangement where, you know, Willard's going to learn to dance so that whatever, he'll you, help they've got a bet Rusty going get the girl. Yeah, there's yeah. nothing oh, right, like that. Exa- I was going to say exactly. It's usually like like explicitly brought back to heterosexuality where it's like, yeah. oh, like, no, he's he's teaching him to dance so that he can fuck some girl, right? No. And here it's like, no, that's not what's happening here. She already <laughs> likes him. And I, I love Sarah uh-huh. Jessica Parker, who is an actual dancer. And you can tell when she's dancing how just wonderful a dancer she is. But she already likes Willard the way that he is. When he starts dancing, she loves it and is amused by it. But she was already into him. Um, and like they both know that it's just about him. And again, like the dance is the metaphor for you need to learn how to express yourself and live in your body and enjoy the way that you are and celebrate your youth and not be terrified of being judged. Um, but what do you what do you think about that, Jason? Oh, I was just going to say I want to set up because you mentioned their intro scene, their meet cute. Uh, I think that like is a really important inflection point. It wasn't one that I saw coming, specifically for all the reasons you just mentioned. How like it hel- is something that helps Willard become more himself and more confident. You can't imagine him actually talking to um, 
is it Rusty, uh, Sarah Jessica Parker's character? Yeah, Rusty. You can't imagine him actually talking to Rusty until he's had this whole trial by fire of learning to dance and learning to be more himself and confident. But it starts with that scene where just in the hall, they bump into each other and they let off these this little fount of, frankly, like toxically masculine things to say to one another. Like he asks him, where'd you get that hat? Uh, you know, do they sell men's the clothes. store? Yeah, do they yeah. sell men's clothes where you got that hat? And it's like, it's it's a it's a, a toxically masculine uh, reductive burn, but it's pretty good. And they They're connect immediately, each other, bro. and immediately <laughs> they, they, they like connect on that in the most positive version of a toxically masculine encounter I can imagine. I just loved how that set up because then they're like, "Hey, yeah, you're Ren. Okay, you're cool. You're new at the school. Cool. Uh, awesome. See you later." And it's like, okay, this. I don't know. It, it, it's just like they. It, it was a turning of this. I don't know. Eventually, you imagine that Willard becomes a little bit better at communicating, a little bit less confrontational. He becomes a little bit more open. But you see, like the seed of real friendship from that very first three or four line encounter. And I mean, there's something to be said for the charisma of almost the entire cast here. We already talked about Lithgow at extent. Um, the first time that Ren and Ariel meet, there's such tension where they just say the word "hi" to each other. That's a whole different discussion, but we may or may not get to. But I just wanted to set the stage for like how just yes cute but also like importantly like masculine and also the same soft and uh and open their first interaction is i just love how they set that up yeah i think uh celia already described this really well but i think we're getting at the heart of what i think this movie does most successfully which is that and and i kind of came to this uh during this discussion so i appreciate it but it's like this dancing as an expression is a is a metaphor, right? But it, but it's also like a very physical true thing. It's like a truism that like I, dancing is not just a metaphor for self-expression. It is self-expression. Um, I think the, the Willard dancing scene is one of my favorites because when he's dancing, it is like you can see the personal revelation like written on Chris Penn's face. He acts it so well. And it's like, oh, you're realizing that he literally is like understanding new parts of himself, right? He is developing a vocabulary to better understand and express himself. And I think that on that sort of broader level, this movie works really well. And I think that to this movie's credit, they do a really good job of conflating dance as a form of um, communication with other things, right? Like they repeatedly allude to uh, poetry, right? And the yearbook, uh, Ariel's character writes poetry. There's the book burning. And so like, there's the whole idea that Ren himself is not a good communicator. He, he says he doesn't have a good way with words. Um, so what I really like about this is that it, it makes this thing dance that is sort of usually considered a metaphor for expression into the sort of like the physical material of expression itself in a way that makes it so non-trivial to remove, right? Like, I think that this movie makes the point that when you are, and I, I think that like, this is the revelation that Lithgow's character kind of has, right? That like, you can't take dancing away from people and leave them the same people that they were, which is like what he's trying to do, right? He's trying to be like, oh, like, well, like people will still develop normally and naturally and, and well without this, without this avenue for self-expression. But by the end of the movie, he learns that like, no, you're actually like, you're depriving people of parts of themselves by taking dance away from them the way that you would with any sort of other form of art and self-expression. 
And um, I don't know if I'm doing a great job of explaining, but I think that the way the movie uses dance does a really good job of communicating that, oh, like these are people talking to one another. These are people like expressing who they are, like outward in a way that if they didn't have the ability to do that, they wouldn't be able to be the people they want to be. Um, and I think that those are the real stakes, right? And I think that Lithgow kind of realizes that by the end of this movie that like, oh, like by controlling the medium, I am controlling the message, right? Or I, I am like preventing the communication of the message in a way that is much more sinister even than I had realized. It's it's much more totalitarian than I had realized. And that's why we need things like dance is because not only um, is it a form of self-expression, but it is actually like through that expression, people are developing, they're understanding themselves, they're, they're becoming. Um, and I, sorry, last thing, I know I'm sort of rambling, but um, I, I also think it's really interesting. Like, I think Ariel is an interesting character because she is so punished in this movie to such a grander extent than anyone else. And very clearly Lithgow himself, like the reason for his repressive repression is largely to try to control Ariel. So I think it's really interesting how like femininity operates in this movie that like, that's what everybody's actually fighting over control of is a woman's ability to express herself. Um, and they, they sort of like create these weird like proxy wars about that. Um, right. Where like he starts this rivalry with Ren, but really it's about the soul of his daughter and his daughter's ability to express herself. And so I, I think the movie does a pretty good job of like demonstrating the real stakes behind censorship and behind repression. Um, and even if I, I have some misgivings about the uh, politics uh, at play there, um, I think that that part of it, like the dancing element of it, um, is a really, really well done aspect. And they tie it in too at the end again, where we can talk a little bit more about those young boys getting their shit rocked it, with like that form of self-expression becomes an actionable tool for the change that Ren and like to directly, like, again, if we're assuming that Chuck, the boyfriend is a, a person who wants authority, who wants autonomy, who wants uh, control over one's right to express herself, i.e. Uh, Ariel and like her ability to date people if she wants and to hang out with whoever she wants and to do all the crazy shit she wants. Uh, that's Ren and Willard uh, just like being the antithesis of that, being the iconoclast of that, uh, like that structure of that system. I quite like that there's even a textual reason, not just plot, not just like the fuck yeah narrative of it all, but an actual textual reason uh, within like the metaphor and action of dance that they're they're using it to shit rock these guys. Just again, I'm not going to stop talking about how cool it is that they do because most most 80s movies, again, you get the final scene where it's like, I am above this. This is too, I'm too good to really like engage with these people or I will simply, you know, like be the bigger man and, and let the authorities handle this. But no, they, they just take on five guys like it's a Yakuza video game and they put them in the ground. I think they kill all five of those men. Um, I Wanted to talk a little bit about Ariel. We have precious little time as, as far as I'm concerned, but um, I guess there, it, it, she's worth talking about. We've touched a little bit on the sort of like the challenges her character faces. I think she is an interesting nexus as the character of, um, or sort of like as uh, 
I don't know, this, this sort of midway point character between her father, she wants his uh, love and approval. She wants like some kind of like acceptance uh, and like change in her father. She also wants obviously to express herself and to be her own self and to uh, sort of like follow the Ren society path toward, you know, freedom of expression, et cetera. Um, and she, as this almost like a bridge then between uh, uh, Ren and, and Shaw, there's that scene and it's right after the one where Harry was just talking about where she is uh, sort of beaten behind the bleachers by her ex-boyfriend. Um, she gets up, sort of wipes that off. It's not Ren's fight, she says, and it, you know, her and his isn't hers. And then she gifts him uh, a music box, which again, maybe this is just like R slash did you notice this type shit, but like that is a very like old ass traditional gift. Like it's a very, very, very old fashioned thing to give somebody. But then in the middle of that scene, the same song that's playing in that music box turns into like this shredding guitar ballad, exact same song just becomes diegetic with the music. Dude, the the electric guitars in the soundtrack is so incredible. Like, especially like when he does the mic drop moment in the courthouse, when he finishes his Bible verse or whatever. And then like, there's like a guitar sting that plays over the back of it. I was like, we're really (laughs) in 1984 now. Truly. Um, 1980s movies are not ones that super connect with me, but like I said, when they do, apparently they do. But like that specific scene, that thing that is such like an emblem of, again, I'm sort of reading, I'm sort of bringing this whole idea of the uh, uh, old heads, the older generation and like just the post-war generation and this new incoming generation of the 70s and 80s. They're obviously like driven by the same confusion, fear, uncertainty about the future. They sort of want avenues to express themselves. The older generation sees that through control, safety, conservatism. the new generation sees that through like chaos and, you know, uh, freedom of expression and bodily autonomy, et cetera. But the, where like that music box to me anyway, is like a little tiny symbol of there's a combination of those things. Like it is, it is synthesis. It is like, there's the free freedom of, of movement through a little ballerina dancing in a music box. There's music playing, obviously, uh, albeit like a very antiquated kind it's all, but then like it sort of bridges that gap as a little tiny, um, like the microcosm of the conflict bridges, bridges that gap when it becomes part of the soundtrack, when it becomes like, instead of, uh, you know, a twinkling little music box, it's a guitar rock ballad from, uh, from 1984. I just really loved that little moment from Ariel because it's her. She like instigates that. That's sort of where things start to turn around for Ren, like where his battle, where his, uh, ideals become less like I'm going after your father and more like we're going after, like we together can go for this. Uh, we can sort of tackle this system. We can sort of dismantle these understandings of the previous generation because they might be rooted in something that we understand that we recognize, but we're too like, there's too much, uh, literal legislation. There's too much like, uh, religious iconography. There's too much between us and that generation for us to truly like connect about any of that stuff. This little music box in this moment with, with Ariel, I think is a little tiny peek through that and allows us to like funnel the narrative in a little tiny moment and then push, get to the final act where, you know, we have ass beatings and we have the dance and we have uh, uh, Shaw hanging out in the field sort of a little bit weirdly with his wife, just staring at the, at the barn. They can't hear the music from out there. Can they? Um, anyway, that was my little aerial moment that I really loved. Uh, and because it means so much for the rest of the plot and for Ren in particular, any other moments anybody wants to bring up or any like thoughts about Ariel that really stick out that we should get to before we uh, fu- start, excuse me, start to find our outro point for this episode. It's, it's wild how the, 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 
the truck scene at the beginning with her like doing the splits between the cars feels like out of a different movie. Like it just absolutely is, is not in this movie. Also does not fit with mm-hmm. her character really for the rest of the movie. It kind of does in like a rebellious manner, but like yeah. just that, that scene f- feels so odd. I think I, I assumed yeah. that by the time that she's doing it in front of a train too, it's like, she's sort of feeling that again, that suicidal drive, that, that death drive that like, sort of like again i'm gonna not gonna psychoanalyze a character that you know has half of a movie from 40 years ago but you know a little bit maybe she feels like she could step into the spot that her uh, brother once occupied and she sort of feels a kinship with him through that like closeness to to death i don't know i i couldn't possibly say but um those moments did like stick out to me as like what the hell are you doing girl for the rest of the movie she does like act with some scruples uh and you know if, if not like the the sort of like very prescriptive finger wagging that her father gives she at least does like have some rain on her actions and emotions and in those few moments they're like little peeks into the like maybe darkness something that's haunting her some sort of trauma um but i agree that it does feel to start her out to introduce her character like that yes uh, classifiably insane uh yeah i mean i th- i think i I think what I've come around to now is that this movie is like it, it maybe not insidious so much as just like hopelessly optimistically naive in a way that I find kind of quaint because it basically it, it operates on the assertion that like oh guys like John Lithgow actually do love their daughters to the point where they're willing to change their ideology uh which is just maybe I'm just too cynical to to actually think that that's possible <laughs> given the way that the world looks but uh it, it is really funny right that like um it's it's basically about like john lithgow realizes that the effect of his ideology is driving his daughter to a lack of self-expression that makes her want to destroy herself because she has no avenue to create to express and he's like oh well clearly i have to change that then this is bad. When in reality, like everybody who's doing that is like, yeah, that's the point. Like <laughs> we, we want to bring women to that place because that is in fact the entire like reason why we're doing the things we're doing. Um, but I, so I think it's really important to understand um, Ariel in this movie. I think she's sort of like the key to unlocking like the real battle that's going on. Right. I, I think that the, um, the music box sequence that you uh, talked about, Jason, is a really great fulcrum for understanding that, right? She's sort of like, hey, like, this is super real to me, and it will have, like, a non-trivial effect on my ability to be the person I want to be and live the life I want to live. And that's when Kevin Bacon's character is is all of a sudden just sort of like, oh, like, you're right. Like, this isn't about a rivalry between me and your dad. This is about, like, your future and, like, your ability to be the person you want to be. Um, so I... Yeah, I don't know. I think that, and I think that's a good characterization, and I think that they do a really good job of getting her to that point. Um, so it's it's a really interesting way to uh, present the the stakes and to make them feel real. Agreed. Uh, I think if not super well rounded characters, all I think at least through each other they find some kind of self definition. Uh, maybe the point of the movie that nobody's dancing alone. Well, one guy dances alone one time. But then the rest of the movie, group dancing. The song Dancing With Myself does not appear in this film. Not uh, not until the 2011 remake. Um, 
well, thank you everybody for the wonderful points of conversation. Uh, we do unfortunately have a few bits that we need to get through. I'll start with the very shortest one, and that is other loves we've tried. It's a segment we like to bring up. Uh, all of us love it uh, unilaterally on this podcast. Everybody knows and loves it. Uh, Time honored bit um, where we just mention right offhand the movies that we've covered from the same year as this movie. Uh, we already had some guesses in the chat earlier about what movies we have covered from the year 1984, the year of the original release of Footloose. Um, all of them were incorrect. It was, in fact, Paris, Texas, featuring Jenny Ackerson. That was our Shit, one I should. I really should have known that, huh? I, I was looking at you a bit judgmentally. Harry's favorite movie. There we go. One of Harry's favorite movies of all time. Uh, and he could not remember the release here. Uh, fake fan, fake fan. That was Other Loves We Tried. See how simple, simple it is, Celia? It was just that short. Um, usually we have two or three, uh, today was just a pretty fruitless one, but that's other loves. We tried, check it out, check out our backlog. We've got 250 some episodes of episodes of movies that maybe you have seen, or maybe you just want to learn a little bit more about, uh, check it out in your feed. Um, that was for the listener. That wasn't for anybody here for everybody here. I want to get your junk drawer thoughts. So I'll open up the quick junk drawer. We have so many sound effects on this show. I know. Um, and just ask for anything that didn't really fit in the, uh, episode discussion, any larger points that we didn't get to. Um, if there's anything that didn't fit within there, go ahead and weave them in now. I guess, Harry, Cody, I see your hands up. Get to it, please. Yeah, maybe this is a hot take and maybe we can discuss it. Um, it's unfortunate for this movie. It's not really this movie's fault. Um, I hate Kenny Loggins. Uh, I hate the music of Kenny Loggins and I hate this song a lot. <laughs> I hate Jason. You know you can song, mute his mic, loose. right? I can Maybe, even kick I'm him sorry, out. Sorry, I, I know to. it's a hot, it's a hot take. I, uh, I, I'm hard pressed to think of a single Kenny Loggins song I like. I think, I think it's uh, bad. It's a disaster. This it, is it the looks hot, like that's already the most heated like junk we've ever had. No. You like Danger Zone? Like, I like Danger Zone th- in the context of that movie because it's <laughs> so the, ridiculous. Here's the, here's the thing about Kenny Loggins that you need to understand. He is so Kenny close Loggins, to the mic like, right now. Soundtrack. No, I'm pissed now. Okay, the the Kenny Loggins like soundtrack songs are impressive because they are fully representative of the films, and that if you if you ironically or unironically appreciate, uh, you know, Top Gun or uh, fucking Footloose, you should appreciate the song in the exact same manner. It is it is part of a whole. You know what I mean? It is fully representative. The song Footloose has all of the qualities you love about the movie Footloose. I disagree, but okay, that's all well, right. Get the fuck out of here. All right, Cody. Playing I don't know with how the boys, it. man. <laughs> it's fine. All right, we're bouncing back, folks. We're on the upswing. Kenny Loggins uh, helped write um, Minute by Minute. How do you feel about that? By, I love by Minute Runners. by Minute. There you go. <laughs> that's he fair. had a hand in one of your favorite Doobie songs. Just remember that. Uh, Cody, sorry, this is your mic now. Nice. No, that's fine. I wish somebody would hand me a doobie. Uh, a couple points, uh, a couple notes about the theatrical experience yesterday. I think the vibes in the theater were pretty good for for Jason, Sky, and myself. Um, there are a couple people in our row that seemed to be in a different wavelength from everybody else. They were giggling at like weirdly inappropriate moments, um, but everybody else seemed to be in a pretty good place. The the um, younger people in front, sitting directly in front of Jason and I, um, as soon as the opening title. Uh, opening credit sequence rather started up the shots of everybody's feet um presumably because it was hyped for the movie and not because they were hyped for feet but one of them turned to the other person and just went yes like <laughs> folks folks were back this is awesome um so the vibes were super good uh the vibes were also great when um during that uh that warehouse solo dance number that extended sequence when 
Kevin Bacon, uh, presumably it was him, um, and not a double, but uh, you know what? Uh, it's a pretty, it's knowing. a pretty shady warehouse, is all I would say about that. That that is that really me. all you would say about that? I don't. It Kenny seems Loggins like it's maybe a double. What do you oh, think? That's about, fair. Yeah, that um, it would explain a lot. Right when Kenny, uh, when Kenny Bacon, when Kevin Bacon slid down like the ban- like propping himself up with both arms, I heard Jason just mutter, "Jesus," uh, which was <laughs> no, no. Look good. at what that guy does. Like, yeah, you can hold yourself up on bars, but he goes down a whole story just sliding with his forearms. That's the most impressive awesome physical scene. thing he yeah, does it, in that. It does run. He does like a one-armed uh, cartwheel at one point. In okay, that scene guys, too. Well. none of that is Kevin Bacon. Those are all doubles. Obviously, that, see, okay, no. directed <laughs> at the Kevin Bacon. Gymnastics doubles. <laughs> we'll see that. I would believe. Who are fantastic? Um, would, yeah, they're great. Um, shout out to Kevin. Maybe Bacon, who too canonically good for a high school student. Hmm. Maybe. Um, Seem like Olympians, to be quite honest. I, yeah, it you know? is. The All way that his it, body changes is very funny from scene to scene it, because suddenly well, it's a man with gigantic arms. <laughs> right, a lot of mysteries just to not cover the same dude. Uh, about this this movie, um, including the you know was it Kevin Bacon? Was it uh, a way more buff double? Uh, the questions we're still asking to this day. Um, the other thing that I will put out, uh, we're still trying to figure out what this is the year of. Um, I don't know if that's still going to be a thing or not, but. Um, if this were Year of the Hype Man or Year of the Wingman or something like that, Re- Fuck, Rusty, that's good. R- Rusty's got to be on that list. Yeah, she's a, a, a beam of of bright sunshine, yeah. hyping up Ren, hyping up Ariel. Um, just I don't know, a really really good character. Yeah. By the Shouting way, I, I hate to talk shop uh, Celia on this episode, so I apologize. But I have been thinking a lot about the Year of. I think what we got to do is we all got to bring one to the Golden Berries and then. And then argue our case. We and just see, fight and sue who nice. wins. Yeah. A five hour long episode. I love it. Yeah. Well, you know, you, they know <laughs> what they're in for if they're listening to that episode. <laughs> yeah, true. Uh, anyway, sorry. That's all I got. Excellent. Um, I'll, I'll, I want to hear Celia's thoughts on uh, Kenny Loggins. If I, I was going to say, you I, were like, upset. I had something else I was going to say. And then whatever, I, I felt like I was being boiled alive. But what you said, it <laughs> was just, it's not even about whether I agree or disagree. It was just so shocking. Um, that it like kind of destabilized me. Um, I love this. I think the soundtrack is amazing. That's why this movie is good. And like, I, I just have never even heard someone say that they don't like Kenny Loggins. Um, because it's like, it's, it's almost like a meatloaf thing where it's like, it's which I love yes. meatloaf, but like, yes. there's this really bombastic, hyper real quality. Um, where obviously the singing styles are quite different, but like even the lyrics to the song in Footloose and the lyrics to the dangers, they don't really make, they don't make literal sense, but they make emotional sense. And so the lyrics of Footloose aren't really about the movie, but they're about the spirit of the movie um, in a way that I feel like is transcendent and essential to what makes this movie good. So I can't really understand someone not liking it because, like I said, this movie is part of my psyche. Um, it's like it's like when you meet people who are like, "Oh, I don't like to go in the sunshine. I prefer like being inside." What an interesting in example dark. that is. And I'm, I just <laughs> that's I, also one Harry agrees with. I think, <laughs> probably. It's just I mean I yeah it's just I'm, I'm not trying to shun you for this. I think I'm just truly conf- confused to my core. No, I appreciate it. I think you know what it is, and I'm sorry to interrupt you, Aaron. I think no, I was no, maybe just—I think I'm maybe just traumatized. I think that I maybe just yeah. heard Footloose in the abstract too to many times. Honestly, I like you having you know. an opinion this bold. I think it's really adding something to Thank your you. yeah, understanding you know, of this uh, movie. 
And I still like the movie, which, you know, in its own way sort of demonstrates that the movie can be enjoyed on its own merits, uh, sans logins. Um, so there's something to that, I think, I hope. I don't know. I Obviously, I'm on the wrong side of history here, so I should probably just stop digging. Uh, yeah, put down the shovel. Um, my only junk drawer thought is that uh, Ren's mom, before he goes to school on the first day of school, uh, she says in September, I think he goes, he's going with like an un, like a messy tie and sort of like a half unbuttoned shirt. Uh, his mother says, when you go to college, you can dress like David Bowie, which is a very cute line. Got me interested in what album released that year from David Bowie tonight. One of his most like poorly regarded albums uh, released that year. So uh, it, was, it was an incredible diss. Like you can live up to the standards of this man who's, has, yeah. who will not see critical success again after less dance for maybe another 10, 15 years. Um, Except for Labyrinth, which is two years later. Which get, everybody loves. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I it's true. Everybody does love it. Actually, I just bought that movie on 4K. I should get actually around to watching it. Um, that's my only junk drawer, junk drawer thought. So uh, unless we have more sort of in the hopper, which this is your chance. Okay, I'm going to close it up. Hey, what if what if David Bowie wrote the uh, soundtrack to this movie instead? That would be great. I like David Bowie, but that would be awful. That would be very bad. That, that would be, would be that would be movie. I feel like David Bowie had – he had – like one let's dance and that was his obviously i don't even need to say it his most danceable song i don't know if he had way, way too many more in his discography i don't know if i'd uh, if i'd wish a david bowie like dance music movie uh soundtrack on anybody i think i agree with Aaron on this one david bowie one of my favorite uh artists of of that age um not not my preferred for a musical uh until lazarus of course this is david not a david bowie podcast labyrinth <laughs> Which you just said you were going to watch, motherfucker. So indicating that <laughs> I haven't seen it is. before, so you can't blame me. Thank you so much uh, for participating in the junk drawer. We have another quick segment called "Good Grief." Good grief. Give me a gif. Um. So any images that you think would go along with this episode, we put gifs out on Twitter. Uh, I'll toss to our guest first. Um. You don't need to spe- have specific timestamps or anything. If you do, feel free to share them. But shots that you think would look nice alongside a quick quote and some episode links when we try to get people to listen to this episode. Um. Celia, any I, thoughts? Yeah, I don't have the timestamp, but I think the most like iconic moment of this movie and one that I return to a lot is like the shiver that Kevin Bacon does at the end. Um, when they're in the warehouse. Mm-hmm. And I'm not really sure like what it means, but it's really enticing and like electrifying. Um, that like Willard's just been dancing and then it moves to Kevin Bacon. He's doing this kind of series of it's almost like pantomime or something. And then he does this like full body shiver um that is actually kind of David Bowie-ish, um, who, you know, he's obviously like the blue-eyed soul thing. Mm-hmm. lives deeply in uh ren mccormick um but that there's something about the shiver all the stuff that he's doing with his face the nostrils flaring stuff yeah. is really it's like part of the physical aspect of him not being an amazing dancer but him being a really powerful mover and being in control of his body and like the just the way that he is constantly bouncing around and feels electric on screen and like the the spirit of the dance has taken taken him over mm-hmm. um and you can see it in in the way that he like sh- sh- is shaking it out of him a little bit of a wild man moment i like it uh cody any thoughts about images we should use on twitter for this plenty uh i like a lot of shots in this movie but if we were to pick one that to represent it you know in its in its entirety to go out with uh the tweet hey follow us on twitter 
dear listeners, until we get a blue sky. I don't know if that's in the works or not, but for now, just you check it out there. Uh, I propose a, well, I, as I was writing it down, as it was happening, um, the teaching Chris Penn to dance um, montage, uh, rather teaching Willard to dance. And I was like, oh, clearly the shot of Willard and Ren like dance walking across the lawn. Um, only then it happens like in two more environments in that same montage. So any of those, uh, would be my, would be my proposal because they're just beautiful boys, um, learning to, to get along and, and fall in love. Um, and also dance. Dancing is a big thing in this movie. Um, so that's, that is, uh, the, I'm putting that forth, Jason. Thank you for your suggestion. Harry. Uh, I really like the guy who moonwalks in the opening credits in his converse. Love a moonwalk. That would be a good gif. Um, I really love when uh, Kevin gets his uh, shoelace stuck in the tractor and he keeps like bobbing up and down trying to get off. Um, I thought that was a really funny uh, physical moment. Um, And then uh, I think that uh, when this is also from the scene where they learn to dance together, um, because they they do kind of learn to dance together. You know what I mean? It's not really so much about one teaching the other so much as they're learning. Anyway, um, I really like it when you see their feet under the bleachers and they're doing like a little choreographed foot dance uh, under the bleachers. They're getting foot loose under the bleachers, if you will. That's all I got. Is that, yeah, I was going to say, is that how you ended that? Um, Thank you though, for having anything. Uh, Aaron. Just the, the warehouse scene, just not that entire thing, but maybe the shot of him dancing that turns into him, uh, the, like the three separate shots of him. I don't even know what it's called. The bars, the gymnastics bars doing like the throw through the air, you know, something like that. But pre- I, pretty much anything in that, that warehouse scene, just Kevin Bacon solo dancing. Kevin Bacon solo dancing 1080p MP4. Thank you for all of your suggestions. That was, oh, hello, emergency services. Uh, that was... Good. Give me a gif. Uh, check it out when we post this episode on Twitter. We actually do have one final, final segment. Um, I think Harry might have briefed you, Celia, about how this episode, excuse me, this segment starts, but I do need some help ringing it in. Uh, are you aware of the bit here? Yeah, I'm not saying it, though. Okay. It's, it's voluntary. Uh, <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll honestly, all judge for it, but I also don't sing it. That might be a good yeah, thing. You're an that, uh, after after I wrote that in our chat, I did go back and listen to the sister sister theme for the first time in quite a while, and to to say that we sing the sister sister theme it's is generous. Generous. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's highly generous. Generous uh, to Tia and Tamara Maori. Yeah, we we're the tastemakers did, here. Did, did they sing the sister sister theme? I believe that would be incredible. I think they did, I, right? Okay, really? I think they were they were singers, right? Didn't they go? I mean, eleven-year-old Jason. I'll look it up. That was and, when that and, show aired. Yeah, remembers it that right. way. Right? It's sort of like it's always that the case. Like whoever is in charge of like whoever stars did yeah, sing. Kevin the, Bacon sang. The intro. Yeah, Kevin Bacon <laughs> did his own gymnastics in this movie. T and Tamara Mori did their own singing for Sister Sister. Final yes. answer. Thank you, Cody. Please. Uh, Please continue. As we've been talking around, this is the segment that we like to call <gasps> Cody's, Cody's Noties. Wow. Thank you. That Take introduction w- <laughs> That introduction was within six degrees of separation from my heart. Uh, Kenny Loggins, as we've been talking about, uh, he wrote, produced, and performed the title track to Footloose. Um, and you know what? He did great work. Uh, and throughout his career, Kenny has been logging many other film credits. Uh, I invite us all to further explore his credits through a little something I like to call 
trilogue. Dun, dun, dun. I will read off one question of trivia at a time. Um, I have a handy Danny hand, 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 I have a handy Danny spinner app um, that our listeners cannot see, but those of us here will see, and I will use that to determine the question answering order. Each of you will provide your answers, and points will be awarded based on correctness of the guess. As always, trivia mafia rules apply here, uh, which means use your noodles, not your googles. With that, let us go ahead and jump in. Uh, for number one, of course, we're going to start with the obvious choice, uh, and that's Rocky Four. Uh, which includes the song Double or Nothing on its soundtrack. That is a song that Kenny Loggins performed. I'm just ripping this right from Letterboxd. Uh, the fourth Rocky movie depicts Balboa proudly holding the World Heavyweight Boxing Championship, but a new challenger has stepped forward in the name of Drago, a six foot four, 261-pound fighter, oddly specific, who has the backing of the Soviet Union. All that being said, my question for you all how tall is Sylvester Stallone? And I'm going to spin the old wheel here, and we have landed upon Aaron. Aaron, what do you think? You're going to cover the spread? Uh, very funny. Uh, I'm going. I'm going to say five uh, ten. Aaron is going with five ten. All right, I got gotcha, you. Got gotcha you locked in here. Next up, we have Celia. Celia, what is your guess? Um, he, I think he's actually, yeah, like a kind of a small Italian guy who just likes to make himself look larger. So yeah, maybe five, nine. All right. Five, nine. I How got tall is to- Jess from Gilmore Girls? Oh, that's oh, spoilers. <laughs> that's, that's actually question, question two. Yeah. Damn it. <laughs> um, we'll get there in due time. I'm, I'm sure. Uh, next up for this question, we have Harry. Harry, what do you think? Uh, first of all, uh, Jess from Gilmore Girls, also a pretty short dude, uh, shorter than you might think. I think that if I remember right, Sly is really short. I'm going to go like five, five, maybe. I think he's like a really short dude. That might be too short. I don't know. All right. Five, five. It is etched in concrete, uh, as will Jason's guess be etched as well. Jason, what do you think? (sighs) Did Harry say five, five? Harry said five, five. My good Lord. Um, I'm going to say, I'm just going to keep going down five. Eight, well, no, I can, I can cover the spread. Um, five, <laughs> 11. Five, 11. All right. Got you. Man, nobody, nobody at six feet or above. A shout out to Sly Stallone, who is allegedly five foot 10. Um, there <sighs> seems to be, there seems to be some flimsiness of that online. I think largely from him trying to like probably, uh, no, I'm actually like six foot seven or some shit like that. Um, he's finding various boxes to stand on, but five ten is the, <laughs> um, most official. He's uh, definitely lying. He's, he's definitely like, yeah, I'll take that feels point. Like yeah. Yeah, that's not true. That's not accurate. Yeah. Yeah. He's wearing right. the, uh, the Ron DeSantis shoes. Yeah, and probably shorter now that he's like a hundred years old. That's, yeah. that's true. When's when all did the, that? Was all that the new muscle Rocky is weighing him down. And he's much shorter now than he used to be. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That being uh, said, see, I will still take the point. Thank you. I was going to say it seems weird so that Aaron is trying to argue away his point that he earned um, for being spot on with five foot ten. Um, so Aaron gets the point. He's on the board. Uh, there are five questions total. So four more. Four more to go. Still very much anybody's game as we head up to Caddyshack our second film, uh, a song that Kenny Loggins handled the music uh, music and lyrics for. Um, I'm all right. Maybe you've heard it or of it. Um, that's a song that's featured prominently. Caddyshack features a subplot dominated by a pesky gopher. I'm going to give you three gopher facts, and your objective will be to indicate which statement is not true. So I'm going to read these three statements. 
First, gophers are endemic to North and Central America. Second one, one suggested origin of the word gopher is a German term meaning waffle on account of gopher tunnels resembling holes in a waffle. It's the second one. And then the third, gopher fact, hashtag gopher fact. There are approximately 41 species of gopher. So those are your three gopher facts. One of those, though, um, is not as true as one would like gopher facts to be. Um, Aaron will be the first step in determining which one. Yes, it it did. Uh, did. Yeah, at this rate, you will go first for every question and get every point. Um, But which gopher fact do you think is not on the level? (laughs) Uh, What was the first one again? Can you repeat that? Yeah, gophers are endemic to North and Central America. I'm going to say that is that is fake. All right. Hashtag fake gopher fact. Uh, Aaron says uh, the first one or a, or however you want to characterize it. Um, so we got that locked in moving down the line. Uh, Harry, which gopher fact do you think is false? Man, I was going to say a, because I think that I don't know about endemic to central America. That seems a little far South for them, but uh, in the interest of covering the spread, I'm going to go with C and uh think that maybe Cody's pulling some classic Cody shenanigans and there are actually like 42 species of gopher or something along those lines. I, I wouldn't, I will admit that would be a classic Cody shenanigan. Is that a shenanigan I'm pulling? We'll find out after a few more guesses. Next up, Jason, Jason, what do you think? You're going to cover the spread or are you going to go a different route? Um, I'm going to go with, with, with B. Uh, I, I, you said because of the shape of their, the, uh, holes that they dig in the ground, I was going to say their holes. I'm not going to say that. I'm not going to say their gophers holes. Um, and, but the first thing you that came did. to mind when you said, gopher, when you said gopher, the first thing that came to mind was actually a beaver for some reason with its tail. And in cartoons, they always have like X shaped patterns on their tails. So I thought, Oh, waffle tail. It's, it's got that pattern on it. Um, I then realized I'm thinking of the completely wrong animal. Uh, but I decided to go with B anyway, to cover the spread. That's my answer. B. I'm not going to lie. That is a fascinating journey. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for joining Um, me on it. Yeah. Celia, can you top that? Um, No, I'm also going with B. I feel like there might be a thing where there's only one species of gopher and all the other species have died out over the last 3,000 years. But the idea that the hole looks like a waffle just feels like such obvious bullshit (laughs) that I, even if it is true, I can't believe that it's true. Strength See that numbers. was that was why I didn't choose that one, right? Because yeah. it's like that sounds too stupid to the not. The etymology be real. is insane. Yeah, the etymology is insane. Um, it also seems like a German word. Yeah. It the, <laughs> here's the thing: B is uh, the correct in that it is false. Uh, yeah. Go for uh, false. Go for fact. The term is French as opposed uh, to German. And that term, I'm going to do my best to butcher it. I'm sure, uh, but uh, goof. It, it's like goof, but with a little like goof, uh, G-A-U-F-R-E. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah, sure. I, goof. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, every, everything else about this statement is allegedly true. But it means waffle? Um, it's, yeah, it's a term meaning waffle because gopher tunnels, uh, I, I haven't been underground in a while, so I can't mm. really like speak to it, but that's kind of the idea. But people back then who like came up with like, I don't know, origins of words were like really kind of batshit, right? I didn't even so, know the French know. had waffles. Our third film, thank you very much for that, everybody. Uh, our third film <laughs> is... Fast Times at Ridgemont High, which uses uh, a song Kenny Loggins wrote called Never Surrender. 
So there's that. That is the tie-in here. Fast Times Penny had Loggins a budget. penned the wonderful song, uh, The South Shall Rise Again, Never Surrender. <laughs> uh, he penned it, because Sean Penn's in that movie. Uh, Fast Times had a budget of roughly $4.5 million. Pretty straightforward question. How much did Fast Times make at the box office during its theatrical run? A box office question. Our least favorite flavor of question. Uh, but again, budget, $4.5 million. I'm going to spin the old wheel here. And uh, if we can see that shine through, Jason's guess is first. Um, so what do you think? Oh, God damn it. Um, uh, you said $4 million bo- or excuse me, a budget? Budget, yeah, four and a half. We're going to go with a cool 12 million. A cool Fast times. I feel 12, like if I've, yeah. I've never actually seen that movie, but I've heard a lot about it. I know it's a cultural touchstone for that fucking really old people. Um, so I'm just going to say 12 million at box office. Dang. A lot of, man, entire generations catching strays this yeah. episode. And you know what? Rightfully so. Uh, next guess is going to come not from Jason. <laughs> Jason, do you want to amend your guess? That'd be a fun wrinkle in this, but we're not going to do that. Uh, Celia, you're up next. How much did that movie bring in? Like the beaver thing, you said fast times and I heard Jason confused. Um, mm. But for fast times, I'm going to go big and say it made 30 million. 30 million. Nice. Got your guess logged here. Um, I've, I've got artisans um, etching that in the concrete as we speak. Meanwhile, I will take Aaron's guess for Fast Times' box office did, intake. Did you say what year it came out again? Uh, it's okay I, if you didn't. I did not. Then, um, then, then don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't want extra don't information. Uh, okay. Well, yeah, I know. Uh, I'm going to say <laughs> uh, uh, 62 million. 62 million, says Aaron. All right, locking it in. And that leaves us Harry, uh, Mr. Ridgemont High himself. What do you, I don't know. That's uh, what they what call me, Cody. That's uh, right. I think I'll go with eight, eight million. Harry is clocking it at eight mil. Got you down here. The actual retail price of Fast Times at Ridgemont High's box office intake uh, can be, I think, considered a, at least a modest hit, if not more so, because of its approximately twenty-seven million dollar box office haul. Um, so Celia wow. was was very close with thirty million, and inflate uh, rather um, translated to twenty twenty-three dollars. 27 million is approximately 850 billion. So uh, congratulations uh, to, to Fast Times. Quick look at the scoreboard. Uh, Celia in a commanding lead with two points. Uh, Aaron and Jason uh, just behind with a point apiece. And Harry yet to get on the board. Still got a lot of wiggle room here to to get some get some points as we head. Just into- say the phrase. Just say the phrase. It's anybody's. <clears throat> it's still very much anybody's game um top gun top gun is our fourth movie uh it utilizes kenny Loggins's track danger zone um perhaps one of his most famous cinematic needle drops uh an all-time classic imagine not liking that song call signs are a big thing in the top gun movies um you know maverick goose Iceman, like little 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 fun nicknames little fun military nicknames um i'm gonna list three uh, different call signs from what I just listed. Three call signs. Your task will be to pick out the one fake call sign in the bunch. Fake as in it was not used for accredited um, uh, character of the first Top Gun film. So I'm going to list three. And they are Merlin, Stinger, and Whip. Those are the three call signs that you have to choose from. One in three 
guess uh, if you don't, you, you know, if you don't know either way. Um, and Harry is up first. So Harry, what what do you think is the bogus Top Gun call sign? Oh man, this is tough. I think I'm going to do Stinger, Cody. Harry is going to do Stinger. All right, locking it in. Um, moving down the line to whoever lands next uh we got celia celia yeah. which one is speaking to you i've seen this movie so many times so i feel like i can picture them on the helmet but i think i'm pretty sure merlin is real i think merlin is a character i think it's stinger too all right stinger. You know, i'm sorry to copy harry but no it's, it's okay no it's it's all good um that leaves it uh for the other two to um to either cover the spread or not uh and that Pressure rests on Jason's big Greek shoulders. Jason, what do you think? Uh, like many other famous Greeks, I am simply chained to the bit. I am. Um, I, I've got to cover the spread. I'm going to go with Whip. I, I feel like Whip does exist. I feel like the answer is honestly Stinger. I want everybody to know this because I will claim the moral high ground when I lose, but I'm sacrificing myself for the rest of the crew. Um, I'm going to say Whip is actually the fake name because I will not live in a world where uh, Top Gun doesn't have a character named Merlin. Tough but fair. I got you down. Uh, and Aaron, over to you. Last guess for the question. What do you think? Not covering the spread at Stinger. It's obviously Stinger. Fuck! I don't think Whip nor Merlin would be things you would make up. Uh, uh, so, I, yeah, I'm going, I'm going Stinger. But Stinger is two syllables, and most of the names are two syllables. That's Whip is hard to say over the radio. It's a good point. Um, I'm not going, changing I'm my phone. I'm just sticking saying. with Stinger. Look, you can change it. No, no, you can't. What if I have? I'm not changing. It's just stone. Here, here's here's a, re- a real thing that could happen. I could get the moral and objective high ground on this one. Uh, everybody, you could like, just let that. Soak I, also, in. it's interesting that everybody ended up going with Stinger because my logic is a Jason Daphnis level uh, leap. Where I was like, <laughs> I am so ready well, to hear this. During during the Soviet Afghan War, the Stinger missile deployment system did turn the tide in favor of the Mujahideen, which maybe would have made it a <laughs> controversial call sign to include in a movie about Western propaganda at that time. So anyway, give, if, tell us why it was whip Cody. <laughs> uh, it was whip. Oh, uh, yes. So um, whip is actually the name of the actor. A whip Hubley uh, is his name who played Lieutenant oh. Rick Neven. Um, That's the coolest fucking sign- name I've ever heard. <laughs> Yeah, his call sign is Hollywood, and honestly, I would say nice. like don't stick with stick with Whip. To be honest, um, so in that movie, he played Hollywood. Uh, Wikipedia tells me Hollywood was Iceman's wingman during the climax of the film. For you Top Gun heads out there, I don't know, man. Um, quick look at the scoreboard. Uh, Celia and Jason are now tied with two points. Aaron has a point. Harry uh, has a donut, but on the plus side, that donut is pretty delicious. Uh, as we head into our final question, our fifth. Loggins' adjacent film is Thelma and Louise, which used a song Loggins wrote called No Looking Back. Uh, Thelma and Louise was directed by Ridley Scott. Maybe you've heard of him. Um, I'm sure you haven't. What I'm going to do is list four notable Ridley Scott-directed films. And what I'm going to ask each of y'all to do is rank them in order of user rating uh, from Letterboxd. So <laughs> people go on Letterboxd. It, this, it, totally viable, uh, not out of left this field. Um, always sucks. on Letterboxd a lot for you. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, so highest to lowest user rating on Letterboxd. Uh, I will list the four films, give y'all time, and then I'll explain the bit a little bit more for people who might be tuning into this podcast for the first time and have no idea what this is. But the four films are Alien, Blade Runner, Gladiator, 
and Thelma and Louise. So those are the four films you are rating um, from highest to lowest average aggregated user rating from letterboxd.boxed. Um, I'm sure it's .com. You'll get a point for each correctly slotted film. And again, there are going to be four films total in the mix. I just listed them off. Uh, so if you get the order perfectly correct, you're going to get four points. That's a four-point swing in your favor. If you get two of the films slotted in the correct order, you get two points, et cetera, and so on and so forth. Again, those four films, those um, four uh, diddly squat directed uh, films are Alien, Blade Runner, Gladiator, Film, and Louise. I hope I've vamped enough so that the first person can place their their guess, and that is Celia, who looks I've... extremely sure. Oh. I have absolutely no idea. Um, is it worth knowing that three of these movies I really dislike and I'm a much bigger Tony Scott fan? Um, I, I feel like Thelma and Louise or hmm, maybe Blade Runner at one, which I think is a disgusting movie. Then Thelma and Louise because it's about girl power. And I feel like people on Letterboxd are really into shallow depictions of girl power. Um <sighs> God, then I feel like maybe people haven't seen Alien because it's from 1979. And I think the average letterbox user is 13. Um, so I'm going to go Blade Runner. No, because Blade Runner, oh my God, Blade Runner has all the different cuts. So people are rating on different cuts. <sighs> okay. Thelma and Louise, number one. I'm going big, even though I don't like that movie as I hinted at. Then Blade Runner, also don't like that movie. Then Alien, one of the best. Then Gladiator last. Gotcha. Okay. I genuinely, I love hearing about the thought processes uh, <laughs> for this. Whole, so thank you for that. Genuinely. Sorry I'm going I show to- my work so much. No, that's hey, that's um one of my one of one of the things I studied in school was math, and that is the one thing that they tell you. Um, I got a bachelor's in showing my work, uh, and I'm kind of okay at it. And to show my work, to show that I heard you correctly, I'm gonna reread your guesses back to you, and you just give me the give me the thumbs up or the thumbs down if I got something wrong. Uh, but I've got for you, Thelma and Louise, Blade Runner, Alien, and Gladiator. Is that your proposal? I think that's right. Okay. Roger Dodger. All right. I am going to head to the next person. Um, and I, I think the rest of these, these fellas, um, they, they probably getting a glimpse into your head while hopefully, um, you know, play favorably into, into their, um, thought processes. Um, if they were a little shaky or maybe not favorably, depending on, you know, Eucelia stands out there who, who want to see her win this game, but Harry is up next. So Harry, what order are you going with? All right. I'm going to go alien. Number one. I feel like probably everybody who logged alien gave it like a five. I know I've rated it on letterbox like six times and given it a five every time. I'm a huge box fiend. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, let's see. Number two is Stelman Louise. Same thought process as Celia here. I feel like uh, if you logged that movie, you probably rated it favorably. Uh, number three is going to be gladiator. I feel like again, I, People who watch Gladiator probably like Gladiator, uh, for better or worse. Um, and then Blade Runner is four because I think it's controversial enough that a lot of people probably rated it low on Letterboxd. Good to know. All right. I got your order down, but I'm going to read it back just to, to make sure I heard it correctly. Um, so I've got for you Alien, Thelma and Louise, um, and then I've got Gladiator and then Blade Runner. Does that, that is correct, match? Cody? 
Gotcha. Thank you. All right. Moving down the line, we got a couple more guesses here. And the next one is not going to be Harry. Um, it is going to be Aaron. Aaron, what's your order? Uh, I'm going to go Alien, Thelma and Louise, Blade Runner, Gladiator. All righty. I'm going to read. I know you just said it a few seconds ago, but I'm going to read it back to make sure I heard it correctly. I've got for you. Yeah. Alien. I've got yep. Thelma and Louise after that. Correct. And then I have Blade Runner and then Killed Gladiator. It. Nailed it. Yep. Four for four. Wow. Dang, I am so good at this. Uh, but is Jason good at this? We'll find out once he lays out his proposed order. Jason? Uh, I'm going to say Alien because, yeah, it seems like the greatest number of people uh, and the highest rating is is likely on that one. I feel like it is cross-generations, so to speak. Thelma and Louise, for the same reasons that um, Harry and Celia ranked it fairly highly, is because I think like a much smaller number of people will have ranked that, will have logged that at all, and just those people will have, by, like, statistically, by proportion, ranked it higher. Um, I'm going to say it's, it's kind of like how isn't uh, isn't the like highest rated movie on Letterbox technically come and see? <laughs> is this, I thought it was still Parasite. I could be oh, wrong. Is it? It's close. It's not it's... Paddington. <laughs> it should be. It should be the first. Man, Paddington, Paddington Two is maybe up there. Yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's going to be. Um, I'm going to say Blade Runner third, uh, just because. Yeah, again, it's one that I think is sort of like crossed. Uh, generations and then gladiator explicitly i'm going to put it in the last place because i don't know many people my age or younger who've watched that movie in the since i started using letterboxd in like 2019 2020 and i feel like most of the people who've seen that are or like watch that often enough to think to like log it must be old i have no idea actually but i'm just putting it down there because it's the one that i've seen least recently of the of the bunch um so again to confirm alien Thelma and Louise, Blade Runner, Gladiator in descending order. Alien, Thelma and Louise, Blade Runner, Gladi- Gladiator. With some parting shots at uh, that movie. Um, went from Gladiator to Sadiator with that little diatribe hmm. of yours. Um, I will now re- thank you. Uh, I'll, by the way, uh, just to get ahead of it, thank you. This has been Trilog. I will now read off the correct ranked order. Uh, correct. Big scare quotes. Um, as far as user rating on... Letter, notorious website letterbox.com and that order is as follows in the first slot we have alien in the second slot we have Thelma and louise girl power in the third slot we have blade runner and gladiator bringing up the rear so this is this is where that puts us um harry came into that last question uh, with zero, he picked up two points, which puts him at a total of two for the game. Celia came into that last round with two points, picked up a point with Gladiator, which puts her at three. Uh, Aaron came into that last round with one and went four for four, which puts him at five. And Jason came into that last question with two, also got a perfect, which puts him at six. Um, a victory for the Greeks, assuming my math is correct, which I think it is. Um, but now the P.O.P., um, the pop-off platform, is Jason's, so please have at it. Your math is correct. I am still Greek. Thank you so much, uh, Celia, for joining us, and thank you, Cody, for ending our episodes always on a fun, lighthearted note. Um, you know, friendly rivalries aside, uh, we'll we'll make this right later on in another episode. Celia, I want to thank you again for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for reaching out, wanting to do this episode. Would love to have you back sometime. In the meantime, tell us where people can find you online if you want people to find you online. Um, and what you're doing right now that people should know about. 
Uh, I write a Substack twice a month. Um, the next one will be about Saltburn American fiction and a dream scenario. Saltburn Ooh. has some footloose moments in. I think you can make an argument for that final dance scene. Anyway, uh, the Substack is deeper into movies, and then my name is my Twitter and my Instagram, which I don't post on, but you could follow me there. Do it, listener. Uh, check it out. Thank you again so much, Celia. Uh, hey, listener, tell your friends uh, that we do this frequently. We have folks on. If you don't seem like an asshole, we'll probably invite you on to hear what you think about a movie. Uh, so check out the Trilon schedule. We like to sk- stick to that at trilon.org. Find our Twitter at Trilove Podcast. Find the Trilon themselves at Trilon Cinema, I think across all social media, but don't uh, don't hang me on that. My name is Jason Daphnis. If you want to find me anywhere, I'm probably at Nintendoofus, wherever that is. Um, but you I don't know. You probably shouldn't. I had one big hit tweet a couple of years ago, and I haven't posted anything important since then. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye. Wow. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening and goodbye. Um, but also thank you, Celia, for joining us. Um, I've been Cody Narvis, and you can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH and on Blue Sky at Cody Narvison. Um, and I'll leave it at that. Yeah. Thank you. Just let me finish adding another notch to the uh, Jason mentions his viral tweet column that i've got going on under my desk uh running out of space but we've got a few notches left uh i've been harry mackin thanks so much for joining us celia that was great uh you can find me on twitter at punish take uh my name's aaron also thank you celia uh yeah find me on twitter at rv please and he is testing us every every day our lord is testing us if he wasn't testing us how would you account for the sorry state of our society, for the crimes that plague the big cities of this country, when he could sweep this, this pestilence from the face of the earth with one mighty gesture of his hand. If our Lord wasn't testing us, how would you account for the proliferation these days of this obscene rock and roll music with its gospel of easy sexuality and relaxed morality? If our Lord wasn't testing us, why he could take all these pornographic books and albums and turn them into one big fiery cinder like that. But how would that make us stronger for him? One of these days, my Lord is going to come to me and ask me for an explanation for the lives of each and every one of you. What am I going to tell him on that day? That I was busy? That I was tired? That I was bored? No! I can never let up. I welcome his test. I welcome this challenge from my Lord so that one day I can deliver all of you unto his hands. And when that day dawns, I don't want to have to do any explaining. I don't want to be missing from your lives. Praise the Lord in singing hymn number 397, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. I have it on the